I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Katarina Prum from Germany's Mosel JJ Prum Winery is here today with us. Hello, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? Great to have you here. Thank you. So, you're a lawyer, uh, but you decided to get involved with the family wine business. How did that all come about? Um, I grew up, of course, in the wine business together with my two sisters. But um, after high school, I thought I should do something else, get a different experience in life, leave home, leave the estate, and went to law school. And I did that for a couple of years, but then the more distance I actually had, the more I found out about the enthusiasm I had for this um, for this life with wines, and um, um, so I I decided to return. That's interesting. How did that come about? That leaning on that enthusiasm. Um, I think it was a long process. First, if you grow up in a state like that, um, it's all you know. That's your, all the life you know, and. Um, I think I needed a distance to really see it from a different perspective because you see it as a kid from the inside, but you don't see it really from the outside. And you have a different connection, which I, of course, wasn't aware of, but I I actually wanted to leave and to just get a different experience. And um, I think it was a combination of um, having this distance as such and just seeing it from the outside and being um, confronted with a different life, um, maybe also missing um, the wine business or the wine um, world somehow with having that distance because I at law school I had no um, contact with wine except uh, one one uh, one or another time having it at, in a pub but usually the wine was very bad so I started to drink beer even which I've never <laughs> expected before um, so I think it was a combination of this and then also because of my law studies I did American law uh, in addition to German law and um um, that brought me to America first, and oh, okay, so it was also this, um, yeah, this uh, first confrontation with wine uh, in foreign countries, and really being involved in some wine tastings, which was more or less a coincidence that I did it. But I met a lot of people, and also the the people connection. Um, I I saw from a different perspective because before I was the daughter at home, and I was maybe saying hello and goodbye, but not really involved. So after that. I, I was leading wine tastings, pouring wines, meeting people that knew our wines very long, and that made a huge difference for, for me. 
Because your dad, uh, Dr. Manfred Prum, doesn't travel much outside of Germany. So this may have been the first opportunity for certain people in the United States where you're living at that time to meet a Prum. Yes, exactly. And I think for them it was very exciting. I, For me, it was I didn't really think about it. I just thought, okay, I did this internship and then do tastings in New York or in San Francisco. It was a ni nice option for me as a very young student to really get to know these cities, which was very exciting for me. And, okay, then I did a few tastings. I, I knew wine from as long as I could think, so it wasn't a problem for me. But um, for them, it was very nice, and that touched me um, somehow because they were very happy to see somebody from the family, and they told me all their stories, uh, their memories they had in in, uh, in combination with our wine. So that was very touching for me. So in a way, it was getting away from... Velen, where you, where you live, and then getting to see the effect in other countries that your wines had on people yeah. that sort of uh, affected your decision to go back. Yes, because um, it wasn't aware when you when you grow up in a state like such, you see everyday's life, and it's not glamorous or it's something. Not glamorous. So it's just hard work, and um, people it's are working. wearing boots and getting up early. Yes, and exactly. And then it's it's. Um, um, sometimes you have the nice weather, but then sometimes in harvest it's stressful. There's maybe a rainy day or you have this and that problem or whatever, a tractor breaks and all these little problems you have in a business. Um, um, so it was not, not at all glamorous, hard work and very, very busy because we grew up in the estate itself. So we were confronted day and night, maybe not at night, but uh, sometimes seven days a week with the business. So... It was, I, I never had a problem with it, but it was also not any glamorous. And I didn't have these personal um, conversations with people that I had when I traveled. And, and what were some of those conversations? I mean, what were cer certain stories that really resonated with you? Um, one story I remember very well was, for example, doing a tasting in San Francisco. And I met somebody um, who told me, well, um, how nice to see you. And I know your father since a very long time. I was a student once and traveled to Germany, did a bike tour along the Mosul River. And um, I bought two cases of 71 gold capsule. And Pretty good year, huh? Yeah, not a bad start. As a, for a student, I think he really spent all of his money. He had nothing left. Um, for these uh, two cases and he said he brought it back and um, moved back to the US and um, had a bottle every year and he said he was he was um, building up a very um, intense relation to these wines um, it was like a friendship that starts you, you first try um, yeah you, you get to know each other and you know each other better and then life continues and you have you experience different things and your friend does too and so both personality develops and he said it was really like building up a friendship with these wines and he was very sad after whatever 24 years or so when he uh, opened the last bottle and was kind of saying farewell to this friend and that was a very touching story for me so things like that really um, impressed me a lot and, and made me think about the whole thing also in a different way and um, caused more reflections on on the meaning of the product um, the, the cultural aspect, also the aspect that it brings a lot of enjoyment because it's a very nice product. Um, um, it's just something people enjoy when whatever they have a good time in the evening. It's not like whatever um, producing a carpet cleaner or something, which is uh, not a living being. So that was very fascinating for me. And and so you did decide to go back and you uh, worked from 2003 with your father at the winery. Correct. And what has that experience uh, been like uh, in terms of working with your father with the wines? 
Um, it's an experience that is different every day. Mm -hmm. So it's not really something where you can find rules. Of course, working with nature is different every day and you can never predict anything. Um, one of the, the um, key things I learned is that if you have the approach we do have, like working very close with nature, not having a wine to be formed in, in mind, but really taking what nature gives us and try to express that every year, there's just not a rule for anything. So, of course, when you start, you want, you want to find some rules to really understand the thing and maybe have some safety to know how to deal with certain things or problems. But um, the more I got into it, the less or the more I learned that there are not rules and um, you have to react and um, try to accompany um, the product rather than really trying to manipulate something or forming something. Um, and that is something I think it's approach other vintners do it differently. They say, well, maybe I need this and this amount of a cabinet or Spätlese or Auslese from a certain year, or um, they try to explain things very scientifically. Um, that's something we do not do, of course, certain basics you need to know. But um, our approach is much more observing and experience from this observation and really trying to express nature every year the best way possible. So if you do a tasting, different vintages, every vintage is really different. Every predicate is different. Every vineyard is different. And that changes from year to year. And I think that's very fascinating. It makes it more complicated, more challenging. Um, but, but I think it's the most fascinating both for us and also for the consumers because every year they really have a different product. It's the same style, but it's a different expression of it. And what was that 2003 first vintage out for yourself? What was that like? Did that present challenges in terms of the heat that year? Yeah, it was. Um, now seeing back, it's it's probably different. In that time, it was just the first vintage I was really involved in. So, um, okay, that was the start. It was, of course, looking back, a very unique experience. And I'm glad I could make it together with my father because he had that very long-term experience and um, it was good to to listen a lot to him and to discuss this vintage. We discussed it a lot, probably the most of all vintages we did. Um, he re often referred to 59 as a vintage because um, there were many parallels to these years. And I remember very well during harvest, we uh, went to the vineyards quite a lot or before harvest even more to really check the, um, the condition of the grapes. And I remember quite well, and that was the only year when I really observed it in this way that many younger vintners stopped us and said, oh, um, we are worried because the, the sugar levels are so high and the ripeness is so high. And it was sometime in September and they were kind of panicking because the acidity levels were um, going down and down and were, they they were, didn't really know what to do. Should we start harvest um, earlier than average or should we wait? My father was very calm. And she, he said, well, don't worry, just wait. It's still too early. The sugar levels are there, but it's not really the ripeness that is there. So just be calm and wait. And he referred to 59 and that helped, I think, probably a few other vintners too, but especially me, to really know how to deal with such an, yeah, maybe not perfectly usually here well, yeah and it's interesting because you do have such a track record of really high quality for so long jj prune uh, having gotten started under its own label in the 20s uh your dad's been there since 1969 um so what has that history been like because i i know there's essay prune and you used to be together and can you kind of chart for me the history of what you have now um so that that is really going back quite a long um, way. 
the name as such, JJ Probix, ex exists since 1911, but there's winemaking in the family since a couple of hundred years. Um, it was different steps. Um, um, the most far going back is probably something that happened similar uh, in many cases in, in Germany and also in France, for example, was that most of the land was owned by the church. Um, so in, in, these, in this period, until probably the early 19th century, um, some family owners were involved through the church in, um, in viticultural processes, in um, vinica vinification probably as well, but it was still mainly church-owned. And then in the early 19th century, um, vineyards were um, auctioned off, and um, it was my family or my ancestors who um, bought a good portion of it. And for several generations in the 19th century, it was one... Um, one estate called Prim um, that was quite successful and could really build up quite a good reputation already. Um, the, the good thing in these days was that although there were usually several people in the general or several kids in the generation, um, for like two or three generations, only one married or only one took over and siblings helped, but it was possible to keep it in one hand. And then, of course, um, this cannot happen forever. So... Um, the last head was Matthias Prüm. He died around the turn from the 19th to the 20th century. He had seven kids, and in that generation, it happened that the original estate finished and seven kids got a share each. So then one, J.J. Prüm was the oldest son. He um, he inherited the part that he then called or or um, yeah created as J.J. Prüm estate. S.A. Prüm was another son. He created S.A. Prüm estate. There are several other ones, Dr. F. Heinz Prüm, different name now. Family owns different names, but um, still there are Lawson, for example, Annie Lawson's great-grandmother was a sister of J.J. Prim. So um, several estates um, finished uh, or started um, from this um, origin and they developed differently. Um, J.J. Prim uh, could hand over to his son in the 20s. Um, with S.A. Prim, the estate was sold about, I think, 10, 15 years ago to a different family um, but um, the original owners still represent the wines, but it's not family-owned any longer, for example. Different wine styles, so today we don't have a real connection. Um, of course, we most of us are in the same village, but um, doing very different interpretations of the vineyard, some um, neighboring parcels, but um, different, different ideas, different philosophies today. And the, one of your most famous vineyards is the Velliner Sonner, or the Sundial Vineyard in Vellin, uh, which is also the town you live in. And uh, there's a sundial in that vineyard. And is it true that one of your family members built that? Yeah, that's correct. That was built by Jodokos Prüm in 1842. Um, that was one of the um, siblings in the original estate that didn't, um, um, yeah, didn't take over the estate, but he was... Um, uh, very social or um, yeah, very interested in in supporting people, and so he was. I think his his um, aim for life was a little bit helping people and supporting people, and um, he had inherited probably some some money, so he wanted to really um, give it back to people, and he built the Sonnenuhr both in Wehlen and also in Seltingen, 
which is also a vineyard where we own a little bit smaller portion, um, immediate neighbors, um, to give people a time orientation. In those days, it was very different to today. People didn't have watches. It was a very Catholic um, region here. Jodor Kospolm was very Christian, very um, Catholic. So he thought, well, to go to church, for example, is helpful to have have uh, a clock, but also for different reasons, when to go back at home. So it was a time orientation and it had that more social um, idea, but it was then later on name, name giving for the vineyards. And let's talk about some of the vineyards that you control today. Uh, what are the differences between uh, Zeltinger Sonner and Vellner Sonner and, say, Gracker Himmelike? What are the broad differences between so, those sites? So these these um, three sizes, as well as the Berncastle Abatschube, which is the fourth winner that we own, are all in the same slope. You must imagine it's a very deep valley with very steep vineyards. Um, in the Mosel, most, most of the vineyards are um, steep, as, um, all top vineyards are steep because um, it's a very cool climate. It's the coolest climate for wine growing in Europe. Um, if you look back to 20, 30, 40 years ago, there was were quite some off vintages per decade because we just didn't get enough ripeness. Now with global warming, um, situation is better for us. We get more ripeness. It's not a question of ripeness uh, or question whether vintage is good or bad. Since last 20 years or so, we've only had good to excellent vintages. More, the difference was more the character of the vintage rather than the quality. Um, so um, that is the the condition. So then this steep um, this steep um, valley um, vineyards more or less south facing. You need the sunshine to really get enough ripeness um, and all neighbors. So um, this is probably the biggest stretch of um, riesling steep slopes um, that exists, at least in Europe, um, and it's. For, for vineyards next to each other, all basically southwest facing, but the, the sun exposition is changing a little bit. Most south in the Vilna Sonno and Seltinger Sonno, then slightly more west facing for the Gracher Himmelreich, and again more west facing for the Berncastler Badstube, also a little bit flatter is the Berncastler Badstube. So, um, little differences in the sun exposition, that's one thing in, in the steepness. And the third thing is um, the composition of soil, it's all gray slate soil all decomposed, so it's very soft. You can see the rocks, but if you often, when you take them in your hands, you can break them by, easily oh. by hand, so it's very soft, giving a lot of minerals to the vines. Um, but the composition is a little bit different. For the Zeltinger zone, it's less deep, so the the um, vines hit the, the slate rock, which is underneath quite easily, and for the Kracher Himmelreich, it's probably the deepest soil on top of the slate rock. Also, probably most water in the Kracher Himmelreich, but enough water also in the Wilna Sonnold. So it's in a hot year, maybe the water supply is a little bit better in the Kracher Himmelreich, but we've never had any problem, even in 2003, which was that extreme here, uh, also in the Wilna Sonnold, because of deep roots um, that always find enough water in the deeper areas of the soil. And it is, in all those vineyards, it's all Riesling. You have yes. a little Optima, but it's somewhere else. No, we we, we have 100% Riesling. Um, oh, I think okay. my father experimented a little bit with a um, few other um, grape varietals in the, I think, late 70s, but that's long, long ago. So it's 100% Riesling in our case, because um, we think for this climate and these um, soils, Riesling is just the ideal grape varietal, and we don't, didn't want to waste any land for another grape varietal, which might be interesting to experiment with, but not really um, producing the great wines we can do with Riesling. 
And is it true that a number of those vines are ungrafted vines? Yes, um, it's a quite good portion which is ungrafted. Um, Phylloxera has never been a problem in our region and we are very happy, of course, to have the chance to still work with these um, mostly ungrafted vines. And what's the average age in a vineyard like the Vellner Sonner? Um, it's a little bit difficult to say. Um, it varies a little bit, but I would say maybe 50 years. But you find many vines that are more than 100 years old, for sure. Um, the, 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 the way we cultivate our vineyards is so-called eternal viticulture, meaning we only replant single vines and do not replant um, the whole vineyard. So we can, there's wine viticulture since 2000 years. And um, the, the, the soil allows the, this monoculture without really stopping. I know in other wine regions, after 20 or 30 years, you need to remove the vines and, and um, let the soil, um, yeah. Uh, regenerate. Regenerate. Um, that's something we do not need to do. So we can continue the, the viticulture um, continuously and we will plant single vines once they are too old usually. There are some exceptions with um, reallocation at the moment. So there are a few um, vineyards that need to be newly planted, but the, the general thing is just replanting single vines. So maybe 40, 50 years. It might be 60 years average. We don't, don't count... Uh, uh, concretely, but it's uh, quite uh, quite a lot of decades for sure. And what are the different styles of wines that you make from those vineyards? I, I know you have different Pradicat releases, you know, Cabernet, Spätlacher, Auslacher, etc. And then you also make Trocken wine. Um, hardly any Trocken wine. We concentrate on um, the fruity style, as it mm -hmm. is um, often called, or off dry style of wines. Is not uh, we don't like the word sweet wines because sweet wine is a sautern or a dessert wine that is really really sweet. And if you try a cabinet, it has nothing to do with the sweet wine. If you show it to somebody blindly, usually people say, "Oh, what a great, great uh, dry wine." So it's it's not bone dry. They are not fermented absolutely through. Um, they have uh, left a little bit of residual sugar, but um, this is not. To, to make the wine sweet. Uh, it's only to balance the quite high acidity, usually to transport the fruit aromas, um, long, the long hang time and the, the special aromas can be very nicely expressed by a little bit of residual sugar, just by not really letting the uh, wines ferment completely through. And we do white yeast fermentation only, so we don't add any yeast. We just let the, the yeast, which are on the grape skins and the cellar, um, yeah, let them ferment the wines into alcohol or the sugar into alcohol. And we just don't aim to have a full fermentation, but um, are happy if the wines stop or the, the yeast stop the fermentation eventually. So you don't use cultivated yeast. And uh, I've, I wonder if that leads to the sensation of what they call sponti in some of the wines. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Sponti is spontaneous fermentation, and um, the young wines often have this, um, yeah, special smell and and taste, um, which for us is very usual. I, as a kid, could never understand people really talking about it because it was very normal to me. Um, but because many people are, or many wines are produced with um, cultivated yeast, which are usually a little bit rounder and um, maybe not as, they don't have as many um, edges and corners as um, spontaneous fermentation has. Usually when it's young, it's more wild, less harmonious, needs a little bit young, uh, longer, but it's something we think gives a lot of character to the wines and um, what we like. And we think a wine shouldn't be or doesn't have to be perfect the time when it's released, but it should really have a long age. Um, and it, yeah, it should um, really enhance and get better with time. And um, if the wine isn't ready right from the beginning, it's fine with us. But of course, you need to know. And this, this special smell and taste is something 
you need to explain to somebody who has never experienced it and had only knows a different style of wine. That's for why we, for example, um, recommend dec decanting the wine because that really helps to blow it off. And do sometimes uh, people smell or taste spunty flavors and confuse them with um, like high addition of sulfur? Yeah, that's a very good point. I'm very happy that you mentioned that because that is an impression I, I get quite often. And I discuss this also with... Um, both with colleagues and with um, a professor at Geisenheim University, because people often confronted me with the question, oh, are you using more sulfur? And I checked with colleagues and asked them, how much sulfur do you use? What, what, what are your references? And I was astonished that often they gave me higher numbers than we use. So I thought that cannot be the, the explanation, but I... Um, I didn't have a, a real explanation, so I went to this professor and asked him, and he said, um, um, it's it's very complicated, they are doing some research on it, but it's very complicated to explain, but what they can for, say for sure is during wild yeast fermentation process, there are different aromas built, of course, that's what you smell, and one of the aromas that is built is also something um, chemically similar to sulfur, it's not the same sulfur that you add, but it's smelling um, similar, and that's what people really get confused about and that's why there's sometimes this um, talking about oh prom uses so much sulfur but in the truth we use maybe as much as colleagues maybe even less and <clears throat> what is that winemaking like you use uh fooder when you age the wines or stainless steel stainless steel yeah. the whole way through yeah and um because your your winery is famously not visited by people uh in terms of no one's allowed to see it or no one has seen it for a while um what what's down there what's what's in the secret room um there is no secret room um we today make a joke a little bit out of it. Um, the fact is that it's really a working area. So it's it's a cellar which has um, different um, corners. It's something that was uh, built and then made bigger in in, uh, in generations. But it's not something. Not it's not a showroom. It's anything but a showroom. So you have the the steel stainless steel tanks, and you have the bottles in the. Um, in the in the vessels there and it's all mixed because it's not something that was constructed on one day and planned perfectly it's something that grew in generations and um, my my father took people down because some people request that and ask can we can we see the cellar they think it's interesting so my father I don't know in the 80s or 70s he took um, down people and said okay let's see I'm not really recommending it but if you want to see okay and he, he he was showing it to people and people were kind of disappointed because it wasn't really what they were expecting. You see the pictures of the beautiful uh, cellars in Bordeaux or some new constructed um, cellars also in Germany. Sometimes I'm very impressed to see them and um, I think they're lovely to see and even do tastings there. But for us, it's really an absolute working area and it's not really not in any uh, way made to to be nice or to be a showroom it's it's just working area and at a certain point my father said why should i lead down people disappoint them they have these beautiful romantic pictures in their mind of a cellar and then they are let down and they are very disappointed so why should i do it and all the people said okay can we go up again so at a certain point he said i'm just not doing it any longer um and he stopped it and then 
he refused when some people came say, oh, and um, we shouldn't do it. And then somebody made up this story, well, uh, maybe there's a secret. And today, of course, it's fun for us. And we sometimes make it up a little bit, but there's yeah. just no secret. Well, we don't want to take you by the dragon. That's the reason we don't, we don't <laughs> yeah, want exactly. you down there. Yeah, exactly. That's it's what we sometimes say. <laughs> you know? I usually tend to people to say people now, um, well, if you go in, you can, but you won't get out again because no living being probably has... has uh, um, experience that so yeah it's like it's, the egyptian it's, tombs you can yeah, you can go exactly. see it but you may not survive yeah. long after it's exactly so it's it's fun we make fun out of it but it's really not nice and it's for us um the, the cellar is a working place um when you go to a restaurant unless it's really designed as a showing kitchen you don't request to go to the kitchen and it's it's a place where people work and that's what they should do they should be concentrated on it and we don't want to put any effort in making it nice because it's not the key thing for us and we don't want to make or build a showroom i've been to napa and and really led through through show sellers where i was sure there has never been a wine producer so why should we do it or why should we change the whole structure of the seller just to to lead people through it's the example with the restaurant, with the great restaurant. I think it's not, um, the idea is to have, when you do a tasting, you should have a nice room and sit there and taste the wines and concentrate it on it. And um, the, the seller doesn't tell you anything um, the wines and, and the vineyards do. And that is also the main thing. The vineyard, that the vineyard produces the quality and the seller is just a room where the transformation from grape juice to wine happens. And you've mentioned that your wines tend to be fairly long-lived. If I were at the consumer level, how might I approach a current release of your wine? What, how many years should I have that in my cellar on average for the different styles and different vineyards? That's a question that cannot easily be answered. Answer that need to, needs a couple of sentences. Um, let's start this way. My father, um, when he was younger, recommended people, I think, not to open a cabinet before it's five years or so old, spätlesen maybe 10, auslesen 15, something like that. He absolutely changed it because um, first thing is everybody experiences wines differently and has different expectations. Some people love the young, juvenile, somehow wild style. They like, for example, the sponty aromas. They think that is just part of our wines and they love it. And if a vintage does show it less pronounced than others, they are already disappointed. Um, some others tell me, well, I don't open a Auslese before it's 20 years, Spätlese before maybe 10 or Cabinet, I don't know how many years. Um, we, for example, like older wines a lot, like from the 80s, for example. Me too. Um, <laughs> um, unfortunately, the, the quantities aren't really huge, but even in our cellar, but that's something very nice. The wines are, um, the fruit usually is much more in the back and the, the minerality is very pronounced, very, you see all the layers and the finesses in the wines quite well. But um, I also would not say if I, um, I am, if I, since I have sometimes the option, I always open an older bottle. It's, it depends on my mood, on the situation. Is it summer or winter? Am I drinking inside, outside, with food, without food, what kind of food? And the beauty, and that is one of the things I'm I'm really happy with, and I wouldn't wish to to choose or to change with any other uh, winemaker in another region, is that we do have so many options. We do have the different predicates. We do have the different vineyards. We do have the different vintage vintages and vintage characters, and we do have the different <coughs> ageness levels. And um, you have a, a 
a huge uh, bouquet of, of or, or possibility of different wines. You can do a 10 or 20 course menu with different wines, different ages, different predicates. And I think that's the beauty. And it's I think it's impossible to really give a recommendation. You can say, for example, if I had a menu to to or a menu and I had to pair wines with it, I would maybe start with a very young or a very very old cabinet. Both can work fine. For example, last night we had um, an 81 cabinet as aperitif, which was very, very beautiful. But also in 2011 would have worked. Very young, still a little bit um, yeasty. Champagne, for example, has the yeasty note too. So that's something that works. Um, and then for, usually for, except maybe for a cabinet, for the food, I like a few years of age. So for Spätlese, for example, a um, couple of years helps because the wines get a little bit calmer. And usually it's a little bit easier to, to match them with food. But then again, it depends. Is it spicy food? That usually um, can handle younger wines because spices um, are quite strong. So a wine that is younger and more, is still more powerful in primary aromas um, can hold better. If it's a very, very fine, pure dish, a um, little bit more age helps. So you really have a lot of options. And it's, it's, maybe it's a little bit complicated because I cannot just say, okay, this is, this, this is the rule. But that's again, as I said um, earlier, there are no rules um, and it's, experience and it's also fun and it's sometimes it's also fun to have maybe younger and older vintage next to each other or different vineyards and really discuss in a group of people and it's ha it happens that some person says well i prefer this and the other person prefers this it's also very subjective and what foods are you typically drawn to to uh, eating with your own wines and the different categories um depends on many things on the season for example um what we get, we, we like um, game a lot with uh, wines because um, we have a little hunting area and we yeah, grew up with game, um, venison or white boar. So that's something just because it's regional and it's traditional that we do slow cook uh, white boar or venison in Riesling for a couple of hours and then have an Auslese, old Auslese with it, like 15, 20 years old. Beautiful match. Mm. But also, um, yeah, in summertime we do have tomatoes in our garden, so uh, tomato salad with just gentle um, balsamico vinegar and a little bit of olive oil can be beautiful. Um, some pasta can be work well. I like to cook Asian food, um, so that works too. So I, I like to cook and I like to experiment a lot and there are a lot of things and I think these wines are some of the most versatile to match with food. They have this slight residual sugar, but it's not really... Um, as I said, sweet wine. And the interesting thing is when you really pair these wines with food, I usually tell people, try the wine first and then try it with food again. And they taste much drier with food. They kind of adopt. That's also a quite interesting phenomena because with food, you often don't think about the sweetness in food. Most dishes have some sweetness. If it's vegetables, you grill them, they develop some sweetness or even piece of fish or, or, or meat. Um, and so they're very versatile and it's a lot of fun to experiment also. Or if you have a bottle and have different dishes and try the wine with different dishes. It's a lot of fun. Even oysters is something I um, experienced a couple of years ago, how well these go with Riesling. So you have a lot of options. And I guess we should mention that your wines are fairly low in alcohol compared to wines across the world. What do they typically ring in at on the alcohol level? It's usually between seven and nine and a half, maybe one. Uh, sometimes it goes up to 10, but um, that is already at the upper limit. So usually between seven and nine and a half, which is another beauty because um, you can drink several glasses and you're still happy and fit and don't get tired, but rather... 
um, get more appetite to drink more and eat more. So that's a nice aspect to it as well. And one of the things that's really pretty amazing and laudable about your winery is that it has pretty much an unbroken string of great releases for going back almost the beginning of the 20th century um, at, at always a very high quality level, which not a lot of wineries in, in the world can say for one reason or another. Um, what are certain vintages that have really drawn your attention or you've learned from over the years? What are vintages that you have pulled out from the cellar and uh, those drinking experiences have really caused you to see the wines or what you're doing in a different way? Um, <clears throat> I think the approach has always been more or less the same. Um, always trying to really produce the best quality possible and if, if some if a wine wouldn't be really of the highest quality we would expect from a wine we wouldn't sell it so we would never sell a wine which we are not 100% behind um, um, yeah also working with nature not really saying we want this or we want this whatever predicates or this style of wine we 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 really want to express nature every year and that makes a different wine every year because the the weather the climate conditions are different every year and that has always been the the approach a very um we see our role as human beings as a very um minor or um uh, low low part in the whole aspect the the nature is really um what what forms the wine what produces the wine and we just try not to do a mistake in bring it from the from the vineyards to the bottle so to say and um i think this has always been the case of course you develop certain things in the old times there was nothing but wood available but then um even in these days for example my grandfather he was when he bought a new barrel he was really treating it for a couple of years um first with hot and cold water many times and then he put in a wine that he didn't sell in uh, in bottles for about three years to really make sure there was 100 percent no influence from the oak to the wine um, taste wise um so and then later on when stainless steel was available everybody was happy to change to that because um it's it's maybe even more neutral and we just won't don't want any um, impact from from the vessel or from the barrel or from the tank um the wine is is stored in so it should be 100 percent um the quality and the, the taste from the vineyard uh, into the bottle and um that has always been the same approach i think this this really um this focus on quality whatever happens um, is something that has been very important if you ask me about vintages it's hard to say because on the one hand of course you think of the great vintages like maybe 21 49 59 71 76 and and so on on the other hand um for example last night we had this 81 cabinet and everybody was so happy and it was not a great vintage spätlis was the best predicate we could produce in a very small quantity so they had a slight greenish taste not unripe but also not super ripe and I wouldn't say these vintages impressed me less, maybe at least as much, because um, it shows that even in such, vineyard, uh, such vintages, so those vineyards can produce high qualities. And also the question, if somebody asks me, which vintage is your favorite one or which do you prefer? I cannot really tell because I love the versatility. And I think um, the different characters are great. Some people say, well, 2003 is not my thing. Others say, oh, it's the greatest thing. We have a very high opinion about the vintage, for example, 2003, which was very, very controversial. But um, I, I would never think of it as inferior or, or or better it's just different characters like human beings you have friends that are different characters but you like them all and it's the same with wine the quality is good 
what of of all wines we we really release and it's just different characters and both impress me equally both the the great vintages but also those who are not as great cons considered but still pretty good quality and have a lightness or a certain character that is um yeah as as tempting and <clears throat> perhaps because you've had a long history at the estate of of making good wine there have been a few different importer relationships over the years and when i go to buy the wines now i notice that sometimes they're imported by someone and other times they're imported by someone else what is the current situation and how has that developed with the import of your wines yeah um it, this is talking about the us in most um countries we do have um just one importer which usually is the best solution because um it makes things easier and it's one person who's responsible for the wines and and uh is representing the wines in a country but in england and in the united states we do have several ones and that has historical reasons in england even much further back um, that was our first um export market where we started i think before um second world war already But that grew and it, there was just one doing a certain portion and then another being in another region. So that grew. In the United States, we had more or less one big one in, um, I think that he started in the late 50s. And he worked very successfully both with my grandfather and with my father for a couple of decades. This and is Schumacher? Or? Um, Kendermann. Oh, okay. Sorry. So um, he was probably working with him, but that was the German, uh, or at least the German shipper. And I don't know if he also had an import company, but he was at least shipping. And sometimes if you see old label or old bottles, it has this strip label still saying Kenderman. But he, I think, schoolmaker, probably Chateau in the States, he, he sent uh, or he um, yeah, provided the wines to all these companies. And then he quite suddenly sold his company and... Um, which was quite a, um, yeah, probably a difficult situation for my father because it was, the United States traditionally is a very good and very big market for us. And if you have just one importer and you lose him more or less from one day to the other, it's not an easy situation. Um, and then uh, Rudy Wiest came up, um, was still, he, I think he just had started to, to um, found his own business and he started and he did a very good job. But then also Falkenberg, which is the second importer which we work with at the moment, um, he also started and he or he, he 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 didn't start because it's a very old um german uh wine import and export company but they started to grow in the united states and they approached my father and um also started to work with our wines and both of them couldn't really um do the same thing that had been previously done by kenderman because they were coming from different directions but both only kind of taken over part of it and then they developed very successfully there were also some others um, we worked with all um, some maybe through um, original connections but now through different shipping agents and we had by um, i think like 10 15 years ago we had five importers or so um, which all had traditional reasons or historical reasons because it was old connections and um, some some old connections just um, yeah re revitalized or um, yeah um, brought back to life. Um, but we we finished most of these because it was just too much. It was they all were growing and there it's there is maybe space for two but not for too many because it then the one grows to another state and then there's the other one and then they fight it doesn't make sense but for these two um since they traditionally did a lot of us they still are working both with us with which sometimes can be a little bit confusing but they both did a good job for us and that's why we continue with both 
So what is the, because here uh, in America, in my own, uh, just talking to people, a lot of people put J.J. Prume at, at the very height of German wine producers or in the top couple uh, year after year. What is the perception of the wines that you make in Germany uh, in terms of stylistically? Are people moving more towards a drier style in terms of German consumption? No, it's in Germany, it's a very different picture to probably what you experience here. I mean, you you know, get the picture better here than I do. But my impression is that people think, um, because I think there are more and more dry German wines being imported to the United States. That's why... The, the perception here is, well, there's more and more dry wine produced and the whole production goes into the dry wine direction. Um, in Germany, it's, for, from our perspective, very different because we have always concentrated on the or focused on the fruity style. However, my father, for example, in the 80s, he produced some dry wines in Germany. I think in America, hardly anybody knows them. And they were really designed only for the German market. Um, I think in those days, he said it, it was nearly impossible to sell fruity style wines. Um, but we we um, went lower and lower in this production. Um, the wines were nice, but it's not really our passion. And we think the style we do is the most fascinating, the most unique in the world. So why should you really um, start to compete with many other great um, dry wine producing um, uh, regions and, and um, estates? Um, so so our focus was really very much on, on the fruity side and still is. And in Germany, it's an interesting picture because we were much uh, less um, um, represented in Germany in the past. We were very, very export-driven and really exported the big, big majority of wines. And now we get more and more requests in Germany for this, the fruity style wine. So oh, it's okay. a different picture to hear for us. German market is growing for the fruity style wines. And um, the perception you get here is probably partly caused by... Um, I don't know the statistics, but in the past, I think the most, the big, big majority of wines imported to the U.S. were from the Mosel. And the Mosel traditionally has this fruity style wines. Um, wines from Rheinhesha, for example. Um, Rheingau, a little bit different maybe, but Rheinhesha or Pfalz also, they weren't as strong, especially like more the new regions like, like Rheinhesha, for example, which are much stronger in dry wines. Um, they weren't really exporting and also files very strong in the domestic market and um, just not probably caring too much about it. And these are now put more efforts in, in getting into the U.S. And for this region, the dry wine fits much better. I, for example, when I um, taste the wine from the files, in most cases, I prefer the dry wines. It's a very different climate. It's not far from us, but it's an absolutely different climate to the Mosul. Usually the wines there are, yeah, the climate just fits dry wines very well. And they are getting stronger. And that is, I think, the picture you get here now, because they are getting stronger. Um, some Mosul producers also do now produce more dry wines, but it's the, the main reason why you see more dry wines, I think, is because these regions are really trying to get get stronger into this market. And you've mentioned a bit about uh, experiments that your father made somewhat earlier in his career uh, with different grape varieties or with different styles of dryness. Are there experiments that you would be curious to uh, carry out in your own future career at Prune? Um from perspective of today, no, not really, because I think the style we do is something which is very well developed and it's very fascinating. I personally like it a lot. Um, I'm, I love this fruity style uh, wines. I, for as I said, for different uh, other regions, I usually prefer dry wines, but for the Mosel, I absolutely love this style of wines. I think it's so unique. This interplay with, between the fruitiness, the acidity, and the minerality, slight minerality, and also the low alcohols are just 
absolutely great. And I wouldn't really like to waste um, my, my grapes for other experiments, both with other grape varietals, which are can be great in other regions. But I'm, I'm very convinced that for the Mosul Riesling is just uh, the ideal grape varietal. And also style-wise, so I think never say never, but from from this perspective now, I think there is there are so many great dry wines, even dry, dry rieslings in the world, but they are so little wines of this style. And um, I think it's much more fascinating to introduce this style to new people. Um, there is much more um, space for these wines than we can produce, and I think it's it's just more fun to concentrate on this style and really make people happy with this. One of the things that's sometimes been confusing to me in my own career is understanding exactly how the uh, gold capsule and long gold capsule fit into your production and what those are uh, and how they're re represented. It's, can you tell us a little bit about those those bottlings? Yeah, so um, gold capsule, long gold capsule is an invention by Windhorst. It's something that is not defined by German law. law German like to, to give a lot of regulations, but this is something which is actually a consequence of a prohibition of the terms feine Auslese, feinste Auslese, hochfeine Auslese that was allowed until the late, um, yeah, early 70s. So 71 had a huge uh, change in German wine law. And since then, it was not allowed to use these terms any longer to differentiate on the in the Auslese category. However, the Auslese category can have very different phases. It can, Auslese can be made of, a, of grapes that is just very, very ripe, golden colored, very ripe grapes. But you can also have some botrytis in it. So you have the next higher predicate is Bernauslese, but Bernauslese means 100% botrytis. Auslese can be zero botrytis, can be 50% botrytis, for example. And um, we think it's uh, a just, uh, an Auslese made just of very high golden colored, um, ripe, very ripe grapes is a different thing to um, a product that has maybe 30 or 50 percent of botrytis that these are different styles the taste is different the concentration is different and we wouldn't like to put this all into the same barrel so we we like to differentiate because um, these are really different styles also have different functions for us a regular auslese is still a food wine maybe something to have with um, cheese but um, other than that usually with some age more for food wines while a gold capsule with some botrytis is something maybe you have with foie gras but you can also have with a not too sweet dessert, for example. So different, different pictures, different characters, and um, yeah. So the, this was all, all already expressed in these terms: feiner Auslese, feinster Auslese. And since it was prohibited, and people, vintners, my father and colleagues, still wanted to produce and to differentiate, they invented the golden capsule. It's something that's, as I said, not defined by German law. It's something also that not every producer do some. There are even some that use a golden capsule um, for all wines, but more often it's that um, yeah they use either gold capsule or they use um, star system. Like you also find producers sure. that use one, two, three stars or fooder numbers. Um, it's all a consequence of this prohibition of law. It, I know it's getting sometimes a little bit complicated, but I think the um, the gold capsule system is something many producers use, and it's something that is maybe. Once you have gotten an explanation, most easy to understand because it has a certain logic um, behind it. And so so for our wines, if they have a golden capsule, usually it means some botrytis in it. Um, the long gold capsule is something which is very rare. It's often asked, but you hardly see the bottles. Um, it's usually wine that we only auction at the VDP Trier, VDP Mosel auction in Trier, which is happening every year. Um, that's an auction where... Um, 
most of the VDP members of the regional Mosul um, um, section um, auction off or auction their um, best barrels, um, usually quite small portions, is Berenoslis and TBA um, gold capsules, sometimes even a Spätli is a very brilliant one, very small quantities. And um, long gold capsules are usually auctioned there. You can see them once in a while in the market, but it's usually only auctioned uh, in that um, specific event in, in late September. If you if you find a bottle and you're not sure, maybe you buy it or um, it's, it's offered at an auction here in the US or so, and you're not sure if it's a gold capsule or long gold capsule, the long gold capsule has since, I think, the early 90s, two white stripes on, on the bottom, while the regular um, gold capsule only has one. So that is something my father did on purpose because if you don't have the two bottles next to each other, how do right. you know yeah. if it's a long or a short one? So that's long to me. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> So we often also get emails asking us that. And um, yeah, if it's a wine which is 90 or younger, it's usually indicated by the two white stripes at the bottom line. So golden capsule, but two white stripes indicating it's a long gold capsule. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your father. Uh, he, he took over the estate in 69. Uh, I it seems to me that the focus of the winery really is on the vineyards, but I wonder uh, how he's most impressed you or what you feel that he might be most proud of in his career. Um, so proud is, I think, a word we, we do not really like. We are not proud of something. We try to do a good job, but we are not really proud. That's not, we don't sit down and say, oh, we are proud of this and this. My father, I think he would hate the question if you asked him that. Um, he would, uh, I think the the thing that, that is, um, one of his big, um, yeah, what what I think was his one of the best aspects he did was really focusing on a certain style and being convinced or or um, really continuing this style uh, even if there were critics like for example this um, spontaneous fermentation in the eighties he had huge problems maybe um, it's I think it's not really known here but in Germany many journalists attacked him because of this style because they said oh the wines are faulty and blah, 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 very bad. Uh, it was really a fight with journalists. And I think it was a quite hard time for him. We Today, I, I cannot remember this and, and we cannot imagine how bad that was in these days. Um, but he just continued because he was convinced that it was the right thing. And I think that was good. Today, you hear many young vintners saying, oh, I think it's so great what he did and I want to do the same and spontaneous fermentation is it. Sometimes I think it's even a little bit too much made up. It's the absolute contrast of what happened uh, in the 80s. Sometimes today even journalists write, my father was the pioneer of um, spontaneous fermentation, which is absolutely nonsense because the Romans already, I mean, in old times there was no no alternative to white yeast fermentation. So it's, it's really silly to say he was the pioneer, but at least it's recognized today that um, it's a good thing to do it this way or it can produce very um, high quality and very characteristic wines. And I think that is something to really continue that and not be intimidated by some attacks. That was one of the key things. And then, of course, um, just the approach to say every year we try out to get the best possible. And if we're not 100% sure of a quality of a, a barrel, for example, we would not release it. So this is really following, always trying to do the best and um, observing very closely and doing all the little steps, not not forcing the wine, not saying we meet, need to bottle in whatever March or April, just really observing the development of the grapes and the wines, harvesting late, all these little details which result in a great wine or in a not so great wine, to really focus and never really give up the energy to, to continue, the, continue that. I think that's 
um, some of his merits. <clears throat> and what about your younger sisters? Do you think in the future that one or both of them might join you at the winery in some capacity? Um, my youngest uh, sister, no, for sure. My other sister, let's see. We don't know yet. And I wonder, you mentioned a long uh, harvest season, and it seems like it can be quite long. I've heard about harvesting in November. I'm yeah. sure there's times that are later. Uh, yeah. What is the reality of that? So uh, um, if, if we look back to last year, vintage 2012, we started October 22nd and finished November 17th. And that's not unusual. So um, it can be a little bit earlier. Usually it's between early October and late November, but it can be, yeah, like last year, 22nd, um, vintage 2008 was start, just started October 25th. So that is quite normal and can, can last until November, can even last until December. That is so, so, um, let's say second half of October and November is usually the core harvest time. So it's probably pretty cold in those vineyards. Yes, moment. it's it's pretty cold. Also, it's certain risk because the later it gets in the year, the more the more um, unstable the weather can get. But we love the long hang time, and um, it's something that is possible in the Mosul, and it it lets the wines develop a much better structure and and much better and deeper aromas, and um, also transport the minerals for a very long time into the grapes. And um, yeah, we are happy about that possibility. Well, I, I enjoy the wines quite a bit as well. Thank you, Katerina Prum of the JJ Prum Winery for being here today. Thank you for having me. It was Thanks wonderful a lot. to speak with you. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.